All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. When we ended the last chapter, we were talking about how Microsoft cut a deal with America Online to make Internet Explorer the default web browser for AOL's millions of users. This was a major blow to Netscape that would eventually lead to Navigator's decline against Internet Explorer, at least in terms of share of the browser market. In fact, if you listen to the interview I did with Lou Montulli, he singled out this AOL-Microsoft deal as the event that was the major turning point in Netscape and Navigator's fortunes. But there's a whole nother side to this story. If Microsoft's partnership with AOL signaled Netscape's decline, at the very same time it was an indication of America Online's triumph as the 800-pound gorilla of the online services industry. Like Netscape, AOL was a company that had tangled with Microsoft and for a long time feared being crushed under a Microsoft onslaught. In fact, at the time of the deal, AOL's number one competitor was the Microsoft network, what would later become known as MSN. So it seems weird in retrospect, Microsoft was willing to go to war to keep Netscape icons off the Windows desktop but at the same time, it turned around and gave prime desktop icon real estate to AOL. Bill Gates seemingly sacrificed Microsoft's own online services efforts in the form of the Microsoft network in order to give Internet Explorer a boost. The gamble was that web browsers would be far more important than online services to Microsoft's long-term strategic success. Consequently, MSN would always be seen as the also-ran behind online services leader AOL. And later in the 90s, as the browser wars were won and faded into memory, many in the tech industry would wonder if Gates hadn't sacrificed the wrong strategic horse. And so that is the story we're going to look back on in this episode, which is Chapter 1, Part 1, Online Services at the Dawn of the Internet Era. Online services actually have a long history 
that predates the World Wide Web. Younger readers will wonder what exactly people did with computers before they could go online. And indeed, if you look back at advertisements for PCs from the early 1980s, the selling points are often word processing, household budgetary management, and recipe collections, basically. By the late 1980s and early 90s, the ads suddenly begin to feature proprietary online services that promised games, unique content from trusted media properties, and vague concepts of things like online banking. Online services were dreamed up as a, quote, something else to do with computers once you brought them home, and PC manufacturers started bundling these services with their machines as an extra selling point to entice consumers. The fact that consumers would have to cough up fees to use those services didn't hurt either. The granddaddy of the online services was CompuServe, which was born in 1969 as the CompuServe network. CompuServe was a time-sharing computer service, allowing businesses to rent computing time during business hours. This was back in the day when if you didn't have access to a large mainframe, you could dial in and rent time to use the mainframe. CompuServe did a tidy business amongst corporate users in a time period where PCs were not yet sufficiently powerful computing machines. The tax preparation company H&R Block purchased the company in 1980 and shifted the service's focus to the consumer market during non-business hours. Renamed CompuServe, all one word, the service developed prepackaged features like news feeds, databases, and one of the world's first online chat applications called the CB Simulator for Citizens Band, CB Radio. Look it up. These features became the basic template for what an online service could provide users, and consequently CompuServe became the home of many online firsts. The first recorded online wedding took place in 1983 between two users who met on the CB Simulator, and thought it fitting to say their vows in the medium that brought them together. CompuServe became the first online service to offer internet connectivity in 1989 when it allowed its proprietary email service to send messages to outside email accounts. CompuServe also pioneered online commerce with what it dubbed an electronic mall. And even the humble GIF graphics file format still popular on the web today, was developed in-house at CompuServe. But the main feature of CompuServe throughout its life was its forums, more than 1,000 moderated special interest sites catering to almost every interest and niche imaginable. CompuServe gained a reputation as the geek and hobbyist playground, with forums catering to everything from stamp collecting to Star Trek. But CompuServe was also kind of stodgy and conservative, at least technologically. Until many years into the 1990s, CompuServe was entirely text-based and completely graphics-free. CompuServe was also somewhat hostile to the technological newbie. For much longer than it should have done, CompuServe denied users even the basic ability to choose their own usernames, instead assigning a new user a 9- or 10-digit handle. CompuServe grew from a user base of about 3,000 in 1980 
to more than a million by the end of the decade. Other companies copied CompuServe's model, launching with a varying mix of email, forums, bulletin boards, software libraries for download, and chat. General Electric built off its existing computer networking business to create Genie in 1985. Another service was Delphi, which was actually launched back in 1981 as an online encyclopedia service, but soon evolved into an online service with its own email and forums. Those forums became the venue for what was actually the first book published online when, in 1984, Orson Scott Card published his now-classic novel Ender's Game in the Delphi sci-fi section. In 1985, Stuart Brand and Larry Brilliant founded the Whole Earth Electronic Link, otherwise known as Well. Brand was famously the proprietor of the Whole Earth Catalog, and the Well service very much maintained the California-centric hippie-slash-new-age ethos of its founder. It has been argued that many of the characteristics and quirks of online culture that we now see in phenomena like 4chan and Reddit were gestated in the Well's influential forums. All of these early services had one thing in common. They were all text, and they assumed that a user would be somewhat computer savvy. Another early online service, Prodigy, was exactly the opposite. It was designed from the very beginning to attract mainstream users and tried to project an image of fun as opposed to seriousness. Formed in 1984 as a joint venture between IBM and Sears, another early partner, CBS, dropped out in 1986, Prodigy launched in September of 1990 on the back of a nationwide advertising blitz. Again, for confused younger readers, it's worth pointing out that until it was surpassed by Walmart, Sears was, for most of the 20th century, the largest retailer in America. Sears was an exclusive retail vendor for the first IBM PC, in fact, and it took pride in introducing new technologies into the American home. Prodigy was conceived as a whole new medium, targeting mainstream computer users and designed to give home PCs added utility. Prodigy had rudimentary graphics, which were primitive and cartoon-like, but were flashy and colorful when compared to CompuServe's all-text environment. And Prodigy had big-name partners to provide content for its users. Newspapers and magazines repurposed some of their content for Prodigy, and big-name media personalities such as Howard Cosell and Liz Smith wrote columns exclusively for the service. Prodigy was also conceived of as an advertising medium. It was organized into magazine-like sections of interest, where the focus was on promoting or selling products. Every screen on Prodigy had a three-line graphical advertisement at the bottom. The imprimatur of Sears and IBM attracted big-name commerce partners such as Neiman Marcus, Levi Strauss, Ford, Columbia Records, and even Sears' own arch-rival J.C. Penney. 
Prodigy hoped to make the bulk of its money via advertising fees or by taking a cut of the product sales. Though the focus on ads and commerce never quite went away, Prodigy's commercial efforts quickly proved to be a bust. It turned out that when people went online, what they really wanted to do was interact with each other. Prodigy's bulletin boards and email services were limited and archaic, and these systems quickly became overwhelmed. The service tried to compensate via a series of decidedly user-unfriendly measures that attempted to limit customer interaction. The introduction of a 25-cent surcharge for each email a user sent over an allotted 30 emails a month led to a member revolt. Prodigy was forced to reverse course and refocus its offerings on user-created content like message boards and forums. But even then, the stodgy corporate culture of Sears IBM was not exactly comfortable leaving Prodigy users to their own devices. Prodigy attempted to censor all bulletin board activity and even monitor every message exchanged between users to avoid any imaginable offense. This was a hugely expensive and man-hour intensive enterprise, and worse, it continued to not endear the service to its users. The contradiction inherent in Prodigy seemed to be that it was an online service that wasn't comfortable doing what online services did well. Prodigy CEO Ross Glatzer told Wire Magazine, quote, We did not think member-to-member communications was going to be a big part of what we were doing, end quote. Esther Dyson, the technology analyst, summed up Prodigy's conundrum this way, quote, They thought they'd make revenues from people making purchases, but they discovered people were less interested in shopping on the service than communicating, and they didn't know how to charge for communications, end quote. By the time the World Wide Web and Mosaic came around in 1994, IBM and Sears had spent over a billion dollars and had scant profits to show for their attempts to invent a new medium via Prodigy. CompuServe, for its part, was doing a middling business, but its corporate parent, H&R Block, seemed uninterested in investing in or evolving the service. Despite all the efforts of these two pioneers, online services were still a niche business, even among computer users. By 1993, it was estimated that only about 4% of computer users had ever even tried a commercial online service. By 1995, Prodigy could only boast about 1.35 million members, and even that was behind CompuServe's 1.6 million accounts. The company that would truly take online services mainstream was another early online pioneer who would concentrate almost religiously on allowing users to interact with each other in whatever way they wished. America Online actually had its origins in another of the early online services called The Source, which was an early competitor to CompuServe, launching in 1979. Through a convoluted series of business pivots, the company that would become AOL also shared DNA with Control Video Corporation, a company that produced an online gaming service for the Atari 2600 video game console. And 
after video games as a business temporarily collapsed in the mid-1980s, the company then evolved into Quantum Computer Services to produce a dedicated online service for Commodore 64 and Commodore 128 computers. If you'll remember in earlier chapters, Microsoft made its business by having a willingness to write software for whatever computer manufacturer came calling. Well, Quantum built its business in much the same way, by being willing to create branded online services for any computer manufacturer that wanted to offer them. Thus, it built online services for Apple, IBM, and Tandy, and in 1989 folded all of these offerings into an online services to run on Windows computers. Windows was brand new at that point, and so they were making a huge bet on Windows becoming ubiquitous. They called the service America Online, or AOL. The bet on Windows paid off in a big way, because since AOL was positioned as one of the first online services for Windows users, it was able to ride the coattails of user adoption as Windows came into its own as the inheritor of the DOS operating system throne. This strategy also positioned the service as the most mainstream and most user-friendly in the industry. AOL was built from the ground up to run in a windowed environment, and the design focus was on clean yet dynamic graphics. And first and foremost, AOL focused on building a sense of community amongst its membership. AOL users were encouraged to email, argue, play, and above all, chat. As America Online CEO Steve Case would later say, quote, From the early days, we recognized that communications, a combination of chat and email, were critical building blocks. So our bias was on creating tools, empowering people, and letting them use them in any way they thought appropriate. Sort of, let a thousand flowers bloom, unquote. AOL's installation process was simple. You put a disc, and later a CD, into your computer, and five minutes later you were online. Like CompuServe and Prodigy, the process of getting online meant using a modem to dial in via a phone line to an AOL computer that would serve the content to your machine. This was literally a phone call to a local number, so all the online services maintained a network of local modems for people to dial into and avoid paying long-distance charges. If you're too young to remember, the sound that's at the beginning of every episode in the intro music, that is the sound of a modem dialing in. While you were online, the phone line you were using was occupied, so anyone trying to call your number would get a busy signal. A monthly fee entitled users to a fixed number of usage hours per month. If a user went over a monthly limit, they were charged by the hour. $9.95 a month got you five hours of unlimited access, but each additional hour costs $2.95. Once you hung up, the connection was terminated. The sounds of first a phone number being dialed and then the harsh crackle and hiss sound of the modem making a connection to the network became a ubiquitous noise across America in the 1990s. To this sound, America Online added friendly touches. Welcome you've got mail, 
and when the connection was terminated, goodbye. The voice on these sounds was that of Elwood Edwards, a broadcaster and the operations manager of WFTY-TV in Washington, D.C. Paid $100 for his trouble, Edwards recorded the greetings on a portable cassette recorder. The tape was later digitized and was actually included on the installation discs so that they could be triggered on the user's computer every time they were needed. Americans heard Edwards' friendly voice literally billions and billions of times as they logged into AOL over the years. Unlike CompuServe, AOL allowed users to create screen names, or online personas, that served as their identity as they surfed AOL's offerings. When you played games or posted to forums on AOL, your screen name was also your calling card. Your screen name was also your email address. But most importantly, when you entered AOL's famous chat rooms, your screen name was your name tag. Chat was what the House of AOL was built on. There were public chat rooms organized by topic or theme. Then there were user-created chat rooms that could be dedicated to any topic under the sun. Both of these public types of chat rooms were nominally overseen by AOL staff and or volunteer member monitors. It was possible to get yourself kicked out of a chat room if you misbehaved. But in addition to these, there were also private chat rooms that were invite-only and monitored by nobody. And in those chat rooms, it was anything goes. It's a well-established notion in business theory that sex often drives the adoption of new technologies. The most famous example of this is probably the way pornography and porn movies brought VCRs into America's living rooms in the late 1970s and early 1980s. It's safe to say that the popularity of AOL and its overall growth was driven very much by sexy chat. Lots and lots of sexy chat. For one thing, it was easy to attach and send photos to other users in chat rooms, and so the trading of pornography was a common pastime. But the anonymity of the screen name meant that you could be anything or anyone you wanted. Like the famous New Yorker cartoon said, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. In AOL's chat rooms, nobody knew if you were really a 22-year-old blonde with a pinup's body or a 55-year-old divorce guy with a beer belly. Americans by the millions took to AOL chat rooms to talk dirty, role-play, and act out sexual fantasies. AOL didn't like to publicize it, but chat was AOL's bread and butter. Some users spent hours in chat, racking up monthly overage costs running into the hundreds of dollars. An October 1996 article in Rolling Stone estimated that half of all AOL's chat was sexually oriented, and given the hourly fees involved in going over, such adult chat probably netted the company $7 million a month. CompuServe was too serious an operation for such lewdness, and the conservative, paranoid corporate prodigy absolutely fled screaming from any hint of unwholesome behavior on their service. Besides, Prodigy spent a lot of its time discouraging customer interaction, if you'll recall. When Prodigy later started experimenting with chat rooms, 
AOL had basically cornered the market. AOL had the wholesome stuff too, of course. In fact, that was the public face of the company. It competed tooth and nail with Prodigy to land content from major newspapers and media companies. And AOL tried to organize their offerings into similar groupings of interests, hobbies, and topics. But above all these, AOL's focus was on allowing members to communicate freely. The more chat, email, and trading users did, the more AOL could rack up those hourly fees. In a lot of ways, AOL can be thought of as training wheels for the internet. For millions of Americans, their AOL.com email address was their first experience with email, and thus their first introduction to ways that networked computing could change their lives. Suddenly, you didn't have to exchange letters or phone calls with relatives across the country. When you wanted to say something to a distant loved one, now you could just shoot them an email. And it was free, except for the hourly charges, and you could attach pictures. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? <laughs> Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. AOL was where people discovered communities that were centered around their interests that heretofore might have been isolated or obscure to them. If you were in Montana and into breeding miniature Rex rabbits, suddenly you could connect with everyone in America who shared your interest. And AOL was where Americans first wrestled with the concepts of anonymity and identity in an online world. All of those dirty chatters on AOL chat rooms were the vanguard of learning what it was like to live life in cyberspace. For its part, AOL liked to project that most American of images, wholesome, friendly, mainstream on the outside, with all sorts of prurient stuff going on behind closed doors. The wholesome, friendly, mainstream thing was personified by AOL's chief executive, Steve Case. A native of Hawaii, prone to wearing Hawaiian shirts, Case seemed like the classic middle-class baby boomer, the guy with two kids who lived next door and loved Jimmy Buffett. With his quiet, shyly earnest demeanor, Case looked like the Procter & Gamble assistant brand manager that he, in fact, once was. Case came to AOL originally as a consultant, way back when it was still Control Video Corporation. Surviving the turmoil of the company's many reinventions, Case rose through the ranks and eventually became CEO. 
With the America Online service attempting to entice users from market leaders CompuServe and Prodigy, Case put himself forward as the friendly leader of the AOL community. Case appeared in AOL ads and would roam AOL chat rooms to personally interact with members or solve customer service issues himself. He sent folksy service-wide letters to AOL users, signed simply, Steve. He even appeared in Gap ads, modeling his trademark work khakis. For a long time, AOL was perennially in third place when it came to size and membership amongst online services. But the freedom AOL allowed its members fueled its slow but steady growth. AOL gained traction thanks to one of the most famous marketing campaigns of all time. Instead of spending money on television ads, as Prodigy famously did, AOL began a direct mail and print advertising campaign that involved giving away the installation discs for free. The campaign was the brainchild of AOL marketing executive Jan Brandt. The idea was to get an AOL disc offering a free trial into the hands of every person that might ever consider trying an online service. Brandt succeeded in doing this hundreds of millions of times over. AOL CDs, or floppy disks, arrived in the mail seemingly weekly. For a while, it almost felt like there wasn't a magazine or newspaper in the country that didn't have an AOL CD insert inside it. Almost every computer maker shipped an AOL disk with a new computer. AOL gave them away for free, while other online services charge manufacturers for the privilege of inclusion. In all... AOL's disk marketing campaign would cost over $300 million, and Brandt would later claim that at the height of the carpet bombing, 50% of the CDs produced worldwide had an AOL logo on them. But the carpet bombing campaign was also extremely effective. Pre-Brandt's marketing campaign, AOL was languishing around the 500,000 member mark. Post-Brandt, AOL was signing up 70,000 new members monthly. AOL passed the million-member mark in August of 1994, tripling in size in just one year. It hit 2 million subscribers a mere six months later, and eventually proceeded to blow past both CompuServe and Prodigy to become far and away the largest online service in America. Coincidentally, this was happening right as the internet and the web were suddenly exploding into the mainstream. Up until this point, no online service actually connected you to the web, but the fact that they could suddenly made online services very interesting. That and AOL's sudden success at the top of the heap of the online service world got the attention of who else? Microsoft. How AOL survived its run-in with Microsoft and actually continued to thrive to such an extent that it grew a power base by the end of the 90s that actually seemed to rival Microsoft's own power base, well, that'll be the subject of our next episode. 